0: Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel Murders. This is episode 36, Reinvestigating the Ripper, a conversation with Trevor Marriott. I'm Jonathan Mengus and joining the show today as our special guest is Trevor Marriott from Bedford in the UK. We have on our show as well Robert McLaughlin from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Allie Ryder from Charlottesville, Virginia. Ben Holm from Penshurst in the UK. And Gareth Williams is in Neath in Wales. Thanks, everybody, for being on the show today. Trevor Marriott is a retired police detective whose book, Jack the Ripper, the 21st Century Investigation, was published in 2005 and then revised to include information on a suspect named Carl Fagenbaum. His new book is titled The Evil Within, The World's Worst Serial Killers. And we welcome Mr. Marriott to the show today. Trevor, could you tell us a bit about your background and what led to your interest in the Whitechapel murders?
1: Yes, um, basically for the people who don't already know that I am a retired um, British police detective and during the time I spent as um, a police detective, I worked in many different specialist departments from the normal criminal investigation department and... Um, and, and a time in Special Branch uh, and also t- time working as a murder squad detective um, where I worked on uh, many murders that, that occurred within our specific police district.
0: And what, what district was that?
1: Um, that's uh, for the people who don't know. It's, it's a county within the UK called Bedfordshire. Uh, it's a small county. It's 50 miles north of London. Uh, a relatively small police force compared to the likes of the Metropolitan Police and other major police forces within the UK. And
0: what are some of your more memorable cases that you've worked on as a member of the murder squad?
1: Well, I think each individual case is memorable because no two cases are the same. They they all take different twists and turns and, and the, the type of murders vary, the suspects um, and, and the persons who get convicted vary so so vastly, really. There are, there are no comparisons. Um, so each case really is judged on its own merits. And I wouldn't say that there were any that are particularly memorable. I guess they're all memorable if you, if you finish up with a, um, a detection. And what led to your interest in the Whitechapel murders? Well, initially my interest in the Whitechapel murders goes back way to the, um, the early 60s when um, I first came across a, a, a British uh, pop star or a, a pop artist at that time by the name of Screaming Lord Such. He used to travel the country at the dance halls uh, and part of his act was to do a routine involving uh, Jack the Ripper. And he had a record out which was a minor hit way back in the 60s. And that's what really sort of first brought Jack the Ripper to sort of the forefront as far as I was concerned. Um, From then on, um, whilst I was a serving police officer, obviously... Um, I took a passing interest in the Ripper because, obviously, over the years there have been different aspects of the Ripper which have been brought to the forefront in the press by reason of new, uh, new suspects being named, new evidence coming to light, etc., etc. Uh, and, of course, whilst working as a serving police officer, I never really had the time to sit down and, and study the, the, the Whitechapel murders in, in any great detail. It wasn't until um, I subsequently retired and and had more free time available that I decided to do, I guess, what you would call a cold case file. I I decided to reinvestigate the murders, um, you know, from scratch as, as if anyone would do with a cold case file. In your book, 21st Century
0: Investigation, there are many established theories That you believe your research into this case has dispelled. One of the most popular theories is that Jack the Ripper is responsible for the murder of five women, the Canonical Five. What are your views on the Canonical Five victims?
1: Well, first of all, I would say perhaps my, my investigation perhaps hasn't totally dispelled those facts. I think what I would suggest it's probably cast a major doubt uh, about these accepted theories I- involving a lot of what the Jack the Ripper mystery is all about. Um, as far as the five were concerned, I mean, obviously, as an investigator, you have to look at all aspects of a case – and, and the first thing that struck me was that why why did everyone suddenly accept that these five women were the only five victims of this killer? I think that was the first thing that I, I looked at. And, of course, when you look at the five victims, um, the one that really sticks out as not being um, possibly the work of the ripper is obviously Elizabeth Stride. I mean, everything about her murder is... Is really wrong in comparison with the others the the location the um, uh, the, the time the murder was committed uh, how the murder was committed everything about that is is totally wrong
2: when you're looking at a, a, a cold case file uh, you're approaching it of course as a policeman and and we approach the case uh, cold case as, as sort of lay people. Um, uh, do you look at it uh, differently than than we do like like how do you actually approach it do you just Approach it in the same manner that is. You look at the evidence and look at the...
1: Well, I think, yeah, I think obviously as a professional investigator, I I guess that one has a little bit more perhaps knowledge and expertise as to how to assess and evaluate the information that you are uh, looking at. I think the problem that that I have seen through, as you describe, lay investigators is sometimes that they tend to be very blinkered in the way they... uh, themselves assess and evaluate and and the conclusions that they subsequently arrive at um it's difficult to to sort of say because they all act within good intent with what with with the investigations that they do themselves but but obviously you know persons like myself are trained professional investigators and we do try to you know look at things in an overall picture and not look at things through rose-tinted glasses, I guess, is what I've described some people as looking at this this murder mystery over the years.
0: Initially, uh, on the first publication of your book, The 21st Century Investigation, you posited the theory that the murderer could have been a merchant seaman. Uh, and then in, in, in the revised edition, um, you actually named a suspect, Carl Fagenbaum.
1: That's, that's correct. I mean... Sorry, when you, again, having conducted the, the sort of major part of my initial investigation and having, in, in my opinion, negated the, the, the band of prime suspects that have been put forward all these years, one then tends to sort of expand on that and say, well, if it wasn't any of these, who could it have been? Is, are there any other likely... Uh, possibilities, and of course, the uh, looking at the dates of the murders uh, and how they're spread out um, could suggest that that a traveller of some description could have been responsible. And of course, then if you take that uh, if you take that theory a little bit further, straight away you are smacked in the face with the fact that there are two. Um, major docks that are within a short walking distance of Whitechapel, and of course, if you then go a step further, uh, you've got um, merchant vessels that come into dock, sailors that, um, or merchant seamen that, when they are um, away from the ship, are looking for prostitutes. Uh, and obviously, Whitechapel was abundant with prostitutes at that time. So, you know, there are a lot of sort of links to to that suggestion.
2: Now, now, in your book, Trevor, um, even, even before you start, this is the very first edition, even before you start discussing a merchant seaman, um, you also say that, um, that you believe that uh, Jack the Ripper came or lived outside of uh, the immediate area of, of Spitalfields, and I, I was wondering why uh, you came to that conclusion.
1: Right. That's a very good question, and, and I think a lot of people who I've explained this to um, do now... St- um, tend to sort of perhaps side with my theory. If you, look at, um, if you look at a map where the murders took place, now everybody seems to think that the killer, after killing these women, then moved back into Whitechapel. But if you look at the location of where the murders were, you will see that they are a very short distance away from what I term to be major uh, public walkways. So my theory is that he didn't go back into Whitechapel, that, that he walked the distance back onto the main thoroughfares and, and disappeared into the night crowds, uh, if, if there were night crowds walking around. But it would have been easier for him to, to make his escape that way than back into Whitechapel. Um, and it is quite significant, so I would urge people to, to go back to the, the the maps again and look at where the murders committed, get a bigger map, and, and look at what are the main thoroughfares of the day, and, and you'll see quite easily the, the, the fact that that could be the case.
0: In tracing vessels uh, in and out of the docks, you have seem to focus on uh, German vessels more than um, any others. Uh, was there a reason behind this, or or um, did you explore, uh, you know, many, many ships from many different countries and just settle well, on getting into the German ships? or
1: The, the process of, of looking at the vessels and the merchant seamen theory proved to be a, a very difficult task. Um, obviously, the, the first part of the investigation in, in an effort to try to... to Perhaps suggest it was a merchant seaman was to try to find out if there were any merchant vessels that were docked in any of those two docks uh, on the dates of the murders. Ideally, it would have been nice to have a vessel that was docked there on all of the dates, and that would have probably um, added um, very uh, a vast, um, a vast sort of. Plus, for for that theory, what I managed to do was to, at the end, come up with a a German vessel called the Raya, which was from the Neudeutsche uh, merchant line sailing out of Bremen to London. That particular vessel was here on all the dates of the um, London murders, apart from one. And the reason it wasn't here on that occasion is that it was... um, it was out of service because it had had a collision in the Thames, and therefore another vessel from that same um, that same merchant line was here on the date of the other murder. So, to, to my mind, that was a very you know definite link um, because again, okay. N- If you look at all of the murders, I mean, we are all suggesting that perhaps with the exception of Elizabeth Stride, if you take the five murders, four were committed by the same killer. Um, But, of course, that's not written in stone, as we know, that some of the murders were Ripper-like in fashion. But, of course, whether any of them or all of them were committed by the Ripper, to be honest, we just do not know. Now, your suspect, uh, Carl Fagenbaum, is there any
0: proof that he was ever on this vessel that you were talking about
1: no there is there's is no definite proof that he was on any of those vessels at all the link to karl fagenborn uh, there are a number of links actually which which point to karl fagenborn and the merchant seaman theory and of course the norddeutsche merchant uh, merchant line the problem that i had was the fact that obviously um, In Victorian times, a lot of the merchant seamen never used to use their correct identities because a lot of the people who were at sea as a merchant seaman were perhaps trying to avoid the authorities for for whatever reason. Um, So, again, the the sort of sparse names that I managed to uh, obtain from the crew list didn't show Faginborn at all. Um, However... When you look at Fagenborn in later years after the, the Ripper murders, um, he used a number of aliases, uh, including Carl Zahn and Anton Zahn. And of course, we know that he was working as a merchant seaman because that came out um, around the time of his trial. And of course, in addition to that, um, records show that there was a Karl Zahn and an Anton Zahn that was working for the Norddeutscher Line uh, sailing between Germany and the USA um, at a time when they were having ripper-like murders as well. So, you know, there, we know that Faginbaum did work as a merchant seaman. We know he was using various aliases and, and and to be totally honest... Uh, we don't know for, for 100% certain as to whether Carl Faginborn is his correct name in any event. That's the name he gave when he was arrested. Um, but um, there is very little that's come out since to actually s- confirm or, or disprove the fact that that's who he really is. So he, he could be Anton Zahn, he could be Carl Zahn, he could be Anton or Carl Strobon because that's another name that was mentioned um, during the course of his trial in America.
0: Right. Um, it should be noted that Carl Fagenbaum was uh, executed for murdering Juliana Hoffman in eighteen ninety four. Correct. Eighteen ninety
1: six. Eighteen
0: ninety
1: six. He was yeah. arrested in eighteen ninety four.
0: Okay, right. Okay. And, and executed in eighteen ninety six. And um, and just as some background for our listeners who may not be aware of of this case. Could you fill us in a little bit on the details of, of the murder that he was tried and executed for?
1: Yeah, basically what happened was that um, Juliana Hoffman and her young son um, were living in um, an apartment in New York and they were a bit short of money, so they um, they put an advert for... Um, to rent the, the bedroom that they had with the intention of then sleeping um, on the couch in the living room. Uh, a man came and answered the, uh, um, answered the ad and gave his name as Carl Fagenborn. He told them he was um, an itinerant uh, traveller, gardener, um, and uh, sat down with them and, 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 and ate with them. And um, after a short time... Um, they went to bed, um, he went to bed and uh, what happened is in the middle of the night um, he has come into the living room where Mrs Hoffman and her son are asleep and he is armed with a knife and the prosecution case is based on the fact that he was intending to steal her purse which was in a cabinet within that particular room. Uh, however, At some point, she has apparently woken up, and he has then proceeded to cut her throat to the point of almost decapitation. Uh, The young son also woke up, um, leaned out of the window and screamed murder. Um, Faginborn then escapes out of a fire escape at the back of the house, down the stairs, and um, makes good his escape down the back alley. However, a policeman who is in the area sees this man uh, making good his escape, chases after him, catches him, um, and Faginborn then acted very quickly on his feet by saying that he, in fact, was chasing the person who he believed to be the offender. However, the police didn't um, wear that particular account, and he was arrested, and a large, long, sharp-bladed knife was found near to where he had... um, escape from the building. Uh, He was taken to the uh, police station when they found traces of blood on him. Uh, It appears he may well have washed his hands or the knife prior to disposing of it and subsequently tried and executed uh, after being convicted.
0: Now the facts of uh, this case point to Carl uh, possibly trying to rob the landlady. Isn't that true? And, and maybe But that it was disturbed in, during the
1: course of a robbery. That's what some people put forward who choose not to perhaps accept that this particular theory of mine. However, I guess one way to look at this sensibly is that Faginborn was uh, a resident in that flat. He knew where the money was. The money wasn't in a locked cabinet at all. So why would he then go into that room uh, armed with a long knife? the the theory of that really doesn't doesn't sort of hold up. Um, you would have thought that if he's going just to steal the purse, he would have crept in, opened the uh, cabinet, removed the purse, uh, and if he'd have wanted to, then disappeared forever from that location. But he is armed with this knife, and obviously, people who suffer from uh, psychopaths. Um, when the red mist starts to come up, then they they feel the need to kill, then they will kill. So it was later suggested that he had um, been suffering from a mental illness that he couldn't, He tried to suppress but couldn't. And from time to time, he himself apparently admitted that he wanted to uh, kill and mutilate women.
0: And Carl Feigenbaum was first proposed as Jack the Ripper by his own trial
1: attorney. Is that right? That's correct. Following um, following the uh, execution of Faginborn, he held a his lawyer held a press conference um, outside Sing Sing prison and admitted to the press that he believed that the person who had just been executed was Jack the Ripper. Um, he said that he had had conversations with Faginborn um, leading up to the trial, which had prompted him to. Um, look at um, the Jack the Ripper murders. Now, again, you know, people have tried to sort of play this down, but, but you know, there must have been something there because obviously the Ripper murders some eight years on would not have been fresh in people's minds in America. And, and for something to suddenly cause this um, educated attorney to start and look at the Jack the Ripper murders... Um, You know, there must have been more than just a passing sort of suggestion that that Faginborn could have been that ripper. Uh, And of course, what he then did, he apparently told the press that he'd done his own inquiries and could put Faginborn um, in... London at the time of the murders. Now, the most annoying factor of this is that normally the press—they can't stop asking questions when pressed do interviews. But it would appear that nobody from the press asked the sixty-four thousand dollar question at that time. Well, what were those inquiries? Had he uh, then told the press what those inquiries were, we would have been that much farther forward in uh, being conclusively being able to to put Fagin born in London at the time of the murders but sadly the press never asked that question and I really I really don't know why because to me it's an obvious question to ask when you're talking about something you know such as these murders
2: Also uh, we have a a point of contention also with uh, Fagenbaum when he when he tells Lawton uh, about the Jack the Ripper business uh, that Lawton later relates Um, he by the press interview, it seems that that uh, conversation uh, took place uh, before his trial. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious as, as to your thoughts on how it was relayed, simply because um, at, e- at every turn, Fagenbaum always asked for an interpreter, and that he seemed to, to speak German and uh, either little or absolutely no English. Uh, yet well, no, no, nobody seems to confirm... Uh, you know, uh, what Lawton heard, you know, even his co-counsel uh, c- couldn't back it up.
1: Well, a lot of people have made mention about the co-counsel and uh, not, not subscribing to what Lawton had said. But basically, a lot of people probably don't realize how the the actual legal system works as far as attorneys and their clients are concerned. Basically, um, my understanding is that, obviously, Lawton was assigned the case, so he would have been the chief defence counsel. He would have been the one that would have been having all the um, consultations and the conferences over the period of time when um, Fagenborn was, was awaiting trial and, obviously, then awaiting execution. The other counsel that you mentioned would have probably taken nothing more than a passing interest um, in what was going on at that time, And um, so I, I sort of have to look at, at what comments that that council subsequently made, you know, with with a pinch of salt, really, because he's, he, you know, he he never had any direct contact, as such, with Faginbaum. Um, and a last question
0: I'll ask on Faginbaum, and then anyone else can chime in here, is that between his uh, conviction on the murder cause and sentence to death the appeals process was carried out in which his attorney strenuously tried to prove that Feigenbaum was insane. And they tried to get the death sentence commuted based on Feigenbaum's insanity. And this failed. So some of the critics of Lawton's theory, some modern critics of Lawton's theory, have posited that there is a possibility that his comments about Feigenbaum being Jack the Ripper sprung from... This desire to convince the public and the judicial system that Fagenbaum was insane when he committed the murder in, in oh, 1894. Sorry. go ahead.
1: I think I think I would have to say that that that, that obviously, um, having now left the police service in 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 the UK, I for the last nine years I I've been working as what probably you. In the um, in in North America, would say would describe as a public defender, um, uh, and obviously now I, I sort of am fully au okay favour with the workings of the defence uh, advocates, etc. Uh, etc. Et and, and when I look at um, when I look at what Lawton did, I, I think personally he perhaps took the wrong um, he took the wrong tact right at the beginning mm-hmm. because it's obviously. Once Faginborn had been convicted, the avenue really was shut to him to go down the route of being uh, trying to say he was insane. I guess his problem was that uh, initially Faginborn um, was not uh, admitting the murder and was not raising any issues of insanity at that time. So obviously... uh, the, the case proceeded as a normal case. I think what probably should have happened is that if if, um, if Faginborn had been making admissions or had made any admissions to Lawton in, 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 confidential, uh, in confidentiality, then perhaps Lawton could have had a better chance of perhaps raising the um, in- insanity uh, issue before the trial and, and using it during the trial, but he didn't. So it was really like a, uh, a bit of a... Last chance saloon, really, for for trying to uh, play that card at that late stage, and it was too late because obviously, um, you know, it, it, that never came to um, that never came to fruition.
2: Now, uh, Trevor, when you went uh, over the case uh, um, of the Whitechapel murders, um, initially, uh, I know you looked at um, all of the murders, um, not just the canonical five. You just uh, looked at all of them, and uh, and I was wondering um, what your assessment is of the police of of 1888. You know, from well, your modern perspective, as well, how it be investigated today. I,
1: I think, from my point, my own personal point of view, is that when I joined the police service in 1970, um, we never had uh, we never had the beauty of um, DNA and a lot of modern technology available to us. Like the police do uh, in this day and age, so basically it was quite it was quite easy for me to sort of go back and and put put myself probably in Victorian times. Um, so yes, there there was there was that um, there was that sort of issue that I looked at, and it was it was very easy to sort of cast my mind back and and probably look as if I I was in Victorian times, and of course. With all due respect to the Metropolitan Police and the City of London Police, I think they did the, the best they could under the circumstances because they probably had never had any experience of serial killings um, before. So they were ill-equipped to deal with um, with that type of crime. I think also I would have to say that, that I do believe that they were blinkered in their approach to to these murders because... I think that by the time the Mary Kelly murder took place, they should have seen the same pattern emerging that I was able to see with regards to the possibility that um, these uh, murders could have been committed by a traveller, namely a merchant seaman. But it appears, uh, and I know somebody's going to probably say, oh, well... Uh, the cattle boats were looked at but um, they weren't looked at in any great detail and I don't know whether the cattle boats um, formed part of the um, the logs and registers that I looked at with regards to the movement of vehicles. If they did then there were certainly none of those vehicles that were here uh, on all of the dates or on Consecutive dates.
3: Just, just on the point, I was quite interesting you said earlier, um, you know, the sailors' connection with, with Whitechapel and so on, but isn't it true that uh, there were other areas further south, closer to the docks, uh, where a sailor could just as easily have picked up a prostitute? And I'm a bit um, intrigued why Feigenbaum would have felt compelled to head further north. Any ideas on that score?
1: Well, you are probably right, but I think probably Whitechapel was like the sort of centre. It's like if people go to London nowadays, then they go to the centre of London. They don't tend to frequent the outskirts of the centre of London. um, Although the outskirts of London do offer the same facilities. I I use that as a probably as a sort of as analogy of 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 what. you know, what might have happened. And, of course, the other suggestion is, as well, that that, that we don't know 100% certain that Faginborn was on, either, on any of those boats. We know that um, Lawton had uh, supposedly been able to put him in Whitechapel at the time of the murders. But, of course, the other scenario could have been that he could have been there living um, or visiting friends. But, you know, that's just another... Option and, and unfortunately, as I say, we're, we're not privy to what, what Lawton did as far as his investigation. But you do hold
0: Lawton's opinion that his client was Jack the Ripper above, oh. say, Druid, uh, you know, private information being given to the police in London that would point to a Druid or, you know, a. Uh, how do you see that that, that your suspect um, weighs more heavily than than the uh, established you know suspects here?
1: Okay. Well, first of all, I think I uh, um, you mentioned Druitt, and obviously with Druitt uh, we get down to the McNaughton um, memorandum. Now, again, just very briefly, and I don't want to labour this point, but but that was a document that was prepared by a police officer that was not connected to any of these murders at all. Uh, I don't think he was even a serving officer at the time the murders took place. He gave that uh, information to the press from other other evidence that he had, uh, I presume, gathered from... Instructing other officers to provide him with with information from the ripper files, um, he does mention that from private information. But of course, one would have expected that private information to be made public on such a high-profile case. Um, I think, on, as far as Lawton is concerned, um, I think Lawton is is a genuine and credible witness in this case because he would not have gone public in front of the press. Um, making up such a story, because whatever he 'd said he would have known he would have been intelligent enough to have known that whatever he said would have been uh, scrutinized and would have been up for for corroboration, so there was no way that he would come forward and say anything that he knew would would come back to haunt him by means of somebody saying that is a load of lies you have fabricated it so that's where in my uh, opinion lawton becomes a highly creditable witness um as as against mcnaughton
2: now now what did lawton do to follow up on uh, what he was told did he? Did he actively contact anyone to to verify? We don't that know. That's I, that's I, the I, that's the sad fact. Unfortunately, that's the burning question
1: that nobody from the press, when he did his uh, when he did his uh, um, press conference, nobody bothered to ask that very important question. What did you do? How have you arrived at that suspicion? Uh, and I really find that difficult to believe, knowing how the press operate. You would have thought that's the most two important questions that they'd have been jumping down his throat to ask. Was he ever linked with any other um, murders or otherwise, Trevor, at the time? Well, again, when I I did my investigation, I was not altogether happy to accept that um, the five or four victims that have been suggested over these years were the only victims of uh, this killer. Uh, And, of course, we look at 1889 in in London. We had another uh, Ripper-like murder then. In 1891, we had a Ripper-like murder. And then we come to another pattern, which is quite significant and and ties in with Faginborn. We we have no other Ripper-like murders here in London after 1891. And then from 1891, or between 1891 and 1894, we have a series of ripper-like murders which are committed in Germany and in the USA. Now, again, it's, uh, it's suggested by reason of the names that I mentioned earlier that, that Faginborn used, that he was travelling back and forwards between the USA and Germany on the same merchant line vessels... Um, but on passenger vessels this time, instead of merchant vessels, between 1891 and 1894. So it, it's you know, it's quite significant uh, that th- those are quite sort of, you know, intriguing facts. And of course, uh, the the, the murders that I mentioned, all of which are undetected. Um, so therefore, you know, there is that suggestion, um, and, and I think the total. I think the total number of murders, if you take into account the Whitechapel victims, I think there are 17 undetected Ripper-like murders um, in those three countries between 1888 and 1894, when he was arrested, and significantly, no other Ripper-like murders after 1894. Um, so again, you know, that's all. You know, that that's all good, hard, you know, facts. I'm not suggesting. On one, is one thing, that is- every.
0: First Gareth, and then Robert.
1: Yeah, go ahead, Gareth.
3: uh, Thank you, gentlemen. Um, Yeah, just on that point of of Ripper-like, I I believe, uh, and I have read your book, and I enjoyed it very much, um, I believe that uh, only one of them involved a disembowelment, uh, whereas whereas the others were uh, ostensibly cutthroat murders. Is that true? And and in in which case, how Ripper-like is Ripper-like.
1: Well, Ripper-like is obviously open to interpretation. I guess you would say that, um, I mean, you you can say that Martha Tabram, um, what what I believe to be a Ripper victim as well. I mean, she was stabbed 39 times. That, you know, you could say that is Ripper-like fashion because that's a very... Uh, brutal and savage murder. Um, the likewise, Catherine Eddowes was a very brutal and savage murder. Likewise, um, uh, other murders that I've, I've highlighted within that group are also brutal and, um, and savage murders and, and a lot involve uh, women having their throat cut and, and a lot almost to the point of decapitation, which is, again, quite an important part of the Ripper, um, the Ripper murders.
4: But saying a murder is brutal and savage isn't enough to say it is a Ripper-like murder. That's like saying, you know, every gun shooting is like the DC sniper case. There has to be more to it than just brutal and savage and involving a knife. Okay. To make that distinction... You're
1: quite correct. Yeah, you're quite correct. You are you're quite correct there. But, of course, however, if you're going to use that... If you're going to use that in, in relation to the... Um, the other murders that I mentioned, the same must apply to the five victims that people say are the work of the repper. It it works that way as well. I mean, obviously, um, the the mutilations could have been um, as a result of of him having more time at the murder scene, um, or they could have resulted in him choosing not to carry out the mutilations, or they could have been as a result of him gaining more confidence and, and, and more strength in, in in the murders. I think the way to look at this is that there are seventeen undetected murders which I guess would come into the category of being rip alike. Now however many of those were actually committed by the same hand, we just do not know. And I would not like to say one way or the other. Because obviously we don't have anybody uh, that that has laid claim to any of those murders or admitted any of those murders. So in, in the light of that, as a professional investigator, if this were a major murder investigation, all of those murders would have to be considered as being possibly the work of the same person. It would be wrong to not look at them in that light.
3: I was, I was just going to say. I mean, in, uh, maybe the, the so-called autumn of terror was a bit of a, a bit of a frenzy or a, a, a spree on the part of the killer. Um, but uh, nonetheless, 17 murders spread over a geographically enormous area. I mean, across continents um, over a period of years um, doesn't. Striking is particularly ripper like behaviour. Um, what are you talking about? Um, yeah, uh, you talking about a major mutilating murderer who's, who strikes within a, a, a period of um, a dozen weeks or whatever it is. Um, back in 1888, suddenly decides to put his feet up, only cut people's throats, and to do that over a period of, what, uh, six or seven years before he's caught. Um, I know uh, Feigenbaum was getting on a bit. I think he was 54 when he was arrested. Uh, but I don't think he was quite ready for retirement yet. So I, I, I just wondered if you had any observations on that apparent slowing of pace, uh, if it was indeed him.
1: Well, obviously, um, the, the the link that I've put forward between Feigenbaum the Whitechapel murders and the other murders I hope has been quite apparent because obviously the the, the common denominator is him being a merchant seaman and him being able to initially travel back between Germany and London at the time of the London murders and then obviously because he then moved from the merchant vessels to the passenger vessels which were then travelling back and forward between... Um, Germany and the USA and that's quite significant because then murders start occurring in Germany and the USA and and we get no more in the, in the UK um, and, and I don't subscribe to this theory that, that suddenly the killer known as Jack the Ripper stopped uh, after Mary Kelly um, because serial killers do not just do that.
4: Um, okay. Yes they do sometimes I mean we have testimony that Dennis Rader stopped for a period of time he was able to channel his aggression into it. I think the idea that serial killers are incapable of controlling themselves for any period of time is largely based on what I consider to be fallacious FBI profiling um, theory that isn't necessarily supported in fact. But we do have evidence of serial killers choosing to stop for whatever reason. So that's not significant enough to say Jack the Ripper couldn't have stopped. And there's also nothing to say that he lived after that fact. He could have, if he was of the type who could not help himself and could not stop, he could have, there are several different ways in which he could have uh, been stopped without necessarily himself being the controlling factor.
5: Yes, I think the whole uh, serial killers not stopping idea is is sort of predicated on the whole fbi profiling image of a kind of disorganized offender i mean if, if he was that kind of person then yeah maybe he would have continued without stopping but obviously if he was more organized and more switched on than that then yes like dennis Rader, uh he was potentially capable of, of stopping or at least pausing for considerable periods of time
3: can i
1: say so the, fir- the, the, sorry, the can i say first of all that go ahead trevor um, go as ahead, far go. as as far as profiling is concerned uh I don't subscribe to profiling. I've never have been a fan of profilers. Uh, I think uh, I think it's a hit and miss affair. And, and personally, I think anything that profilers do say or come up with should be uh, looked at very closely and carefully because it, I think it's you know something that that really is is very hit and miss. Um, I mean, how can how can somebody uh, assess or come up with a, 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 a sensible profile of somebody that that was alive 100 years previous they were not uh the the, the profilers were not um au fait with with how Whitechapel was at that time you know it's all not to be believed in all honesty and I as I say I've never subscribed to profiling uh, and I'm afraid I'm one of these that never will but you know there are people that again we get back to um we get back to what we said at the beginning you know the 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 lay investigators they read what a profiler says and that's what they stick to and that's what they seem to want to work with and and whatever and that's where we differ i guess
0: i wanted to ask go back to something you had said earlier about how as an investigator you Uh, feel that um, if there's a series of unsolved crimes, you would try to collect as many similar of those crimes together. You put the number as 17, and and as you know, um, those, as Gareth pointed out, those uh, took place on uh, different continents. Could you explain that that investigating rationale a little bit better for me, at least? Because in my opinion, I think that it's probably better to start... locally and then go globally and Modern times, in the era of air travel and everything, that rationale that you were you were saying might might lead some to think that well, if there was a serial killer operating in X town in the United States, it might be a good idea to look into similar killings occurring in France or in Germany or in wherever, um, just because of the ease of travel, rather than to start the investigation local. Um, and that, to me, seems a little counterproductive. So maybe you can explain how you believe that collecting these other unsolved murders around the globe, that you see a similar, a better technique than just, like Gareth was saying, concentrating on a half dozen or so that occurred in a single square mile in, in the east end of London.
1: Okay, fine. Well, obviously... My my sort of investigation was to try to find um, any ripper-like murders, as I've described them, that, that occurred um, outside the, the, the years that, that everybody's been focusing on, 1888, um, and, of course, um, the, what, the ones that I mentioned – there are also two others that I've mentioned that are in the new book, which um, are in London, which in 1863 and 1872, I think, off the top of my head. They are two unsolved, ripper-like murders. That obviously, um, I, I, there were no murders before 1888 that I could find anywhere. Now, one significant reason for that could have been that, that we know Faye being born or a person... Uh, which could be Carl Faginborn, who is listed as Carl Faginborn, was employed by this merchant fleet way back in years before these murders. Now, there is a possibility, and I say this as a theory without anything to substantiate it, that he could have been uh, responsible for perhaps uh, a serious crime in Germany uh, at some point before 1888 and was imprisoned because... Um, it was an accepted thing in Germany that when a new German emperor came to the throne, he would grant a mass pardon to uh, many, many prisoners in German prisons. Now, of course, in June of 1888, uh, Prince Wilhelm came to the throne in Germany and pardoned many, many prisoners. Now, if Fagenborn had, for argument's sake, been been incarcerated in prison in Germany for many years um, he would have been released in June and of course then following that uh, in, sept- in, in August we get the first, the first known documented ripper-like crime so that could be another explanation as to why there were no other murders in Germany of a ripper-like fashion prior to 1888 or anywhere else for that matter so again I think that's another important uh, factor that, that, that you know, as far as Faginborn should
2: not be lightly d- dismissed. Does it bother you that uh, Faginbaum doesn't match any of the descriptions of uh, uh, witnesses? No, because
1: the descriptions given by the witnesses are, uh, I would suggest, not to be relied upon. Um, again, if you look at how we deal with witnesses and identification in this day and age, there is a, a rule of practice that obviously... Um, If a person is called to court to give evidence in relation to identification, they are asked, well, how far were you away from the person when you saw them? What what was the lighting? How good a look did you get at them? How near were you? Um, And things such as that, which all then would, would sort of tend to either add weight to the identification or would water it down and and in fairness the descriptions given by the various witnesses all differ Um, and I personally do not seek to rely on them all because again if we look at the way prostitutes conduct their business they stand on street corners and these type of prostitutes in Whitechapel would have been desperate to get any f- any money they could so therefore they would have been propositioning almost every male person that walked past and if you imagine there were a, number of, a lot of people about that time of the morning in the early hours um, then obviously they would have been probably propositioning I don't know, maybe 10 or 15, you know, every 10, 15 minutes possibly. So, again, you know, people have, have given a description of seeing somebody with a specific prostitute, mm, that may be the case, but, of course, we don't know how many others that prostitute met and talked to or subsequently went off with.
5: I think, I think in some cases that I think the timing is so tight. I mean, you know, if, if we can rely on the uh, the... the watch-reading accuracy of the witnesses, but in some cases just there isn't really enough time for uh, another punter to arrive on the scene between the witness sighting and, and the discovery of the body. I think in particular the Lavender sighting, I mean, uh, he saw somebody ten minutes before the discovery of the body uh, I, you could squeeze an additional punter in there, but I think I think it would well, be, uh, 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 be tight.
3: Yeah,
1: <laughs> of course. The issue there is that did did that witness actually see the punter with um, with the victim? I guess that's another issue because obviously
3: True, um, that's another issue. Yeah, we might, my issue with that particular scenario, anyway, and you know, call me old-fashioned or weird, is, is uh, I've got serious doubts as to whether all the the Ripper victims in London, anyway, were actually punting at the time. I I, I just think that the the Ripper targeted whichever vulnerable individual um, was unfortunate enough to cross his path. Um, You know, these women were vagrants rather than, you know, um, twirling their cheap pearl necklace-type prostitutes um, at the end of the day. So I'm very wary of any explanation that requires, um, you know, prostitution as a, Uh, as a keystone of the argument, which yours doesn't, in fairness, Trevor, because most of uh, Feigenbaum's other possible victims uh, seemingly weren't prostitutes.
1: Well, that's right, that's right. Um, And and obviously, Lawton did did, uh, hint on the fact that um, Feigenbaum himself uh, said that he did suffer from this uh, this illness, um, which, if you look at the way it's being described, would obviously be you know, relating to somebody who has psychopathic tendencies that that every so often, uh, despite um, resisting the urge to kill, just has to go and kill. (laughs) And, of course, if if we look at the fact that if Faginborn had been in prison in, in June and had then come to London during that period of time, he would have been incarcerated for a length of time which we don't know and of course then his hunger and his thirst for killing would have been that much greater Um, hence the fact that you know we have this series of killings in in, in those few months
0: I want to get into some of the uh Other theories of the Ripper murders that you might disagree with, Trevor, and one of them comes from a question from Howard Brown from JTRForums.com who was unable to be on our show today. Uh, um, You have speculated that the organ removal that everyone is assuming the Ripper actually removed the organs and took them with him might have been actually organs that were taken from the bodies by mortuary attendants. Can you explain to us why you tend to believe that these organs were removed by mortuary attendants as opposed to the murderer? And if you have any other cases that you can point us to of mortuary attendants removing organs to sell from murder victims.
1: Right. First thing I would say is I've never actually come out and said that I believe that the organs were removed by mortuary attendants. I think what I did say is that the bodies were left unattended uh, at the two locations and they were left unattended for almost twelve hours before um, the post mortems were carried out that in itself would leave it wide open for either a mortuary attendant to turn a blind eye or to allow somebody to come along and remove those organs um... but i've never actually said that it was a mortuary attendant i don't think for one minute a mortuary attendant would have the knowledge and expertise to remove those organs. Um, if you look at the first, uh, the first particular case that I refer to, and that's the case of Annie Chapman, um, her body was taken to uh, a workhouse um, where they had a shed which was a makeshift mortuary. Well, in 1832 in the UK, they brought in the, I think it was called the Anatomy Act, which made it much easier for body parts to be Uh, obtained by people for medical research and of course one aspect of that related to workhouses and people who died in workhouses their bodies could be used and organs could be taken from those bodies so if you if you get the fact that obviously Annie Chapman's body laid on a trolley um, at this workhouse uh, for twelve hours then People would have known that they could go to work to workhouses or mortuaries at workhouses and and be able to remove organs and, and obviously, if they were medically trained, then they could remove them with with some <coughs> form of medical precision so therefore, when they come to do the uh, the, the actual post mortems which they did, the doctors would then Look and say, oh, uh, Annie Chapman is missing her uterus, um, and it looks as if somebody with some medical knowledge has removed it from the body. So I think that's quite a feasible um, uh, aspect. And of course... um, the same applies to Catherine Eddowes, uh, and even with Catherine Eddowes, it's a little bit more difficult, because not only did Catherine Ed- Eddowes have her uterus removed, but she had her kidney removed as well, and that the kidney is one of the most difficult organs in the body to locate uh, and, and remove, and especially um, in the dark, with virtually no light, um, I've I've put together a medical team, and we did some, some tests in relation to this, and, and, and it is almost impossible to do that. So, therefore, the only other explanation could be, uh, as, as I've put forward, that these organs were removed um, at the two mortuaries. And, and of
3: well, course, well, it's well, significant. But well, they, they would have to on three separate occasions in different mortuaries, Trevor. Is, is that likely?
4: And, and not only is that likely on three separate occasions at three different locations, but why then only in these particular murders? Why weren't these roving bands of organ thieves going every time there was a murder victim to slice because, the out that right, organ? Okay. That makes yeah. no sense.
1: Right. Well, it does because if you look at if you look at the other victims um, apart from Mary Kelly, none of those other victims. Um, had their bodies mutilated to the extent that Chapman and Eddowes did. So therefore their, their abdomens were opened up in any event by the killer. So yeah,
3: therefore it would be... Yeah, isn't, isn't the most pars- parsimonious conclusion from that, uh, Trevor, that the abdomens were opened by the killer in order to get access to the organs? That would be... Well, that's...
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, some, that's some people's theory you know and, and okay if people want to believe that then fine that's that's the matter for them but but the point of the matter is that I didn't subscribe to this right from the start so therefore that that I set out through using the team of medical experts I used a I used a consultant gynaecologist I used a forensic pathologist and I used an investigator and we did tests on um, on bodies um, And and we documented the difficulty in in colour photos, and if you get a copy of the book, The Evil Within, you will see that those colour photos are in that book, and they will clearly show the degree of difficulty that there is in trying to remove these organs, even in daylight and under hospital conditions. So, you know, it's just impossible, and the time that it it would need to have taken... Uh, as far as Chapman is concerned, the, the surgeon there said it would have taken, I think, 15 to 20 minutes uh, for him to remove those organs, and that's him. If you then look at um, Edo's having not only her uterus removed and the kidney, I mean, you've got to be looking at on on. on what the surgeon says, you've got to be looking at 40 minutes to, to remove those organs. Now, I get people come to me and say, um, oh, well, we know a surgeon who said he can do it in the dark with his hands folded behind his back, etc., etc. Perhaps modern-day surgeons could remove these organs in, in, in that type of scenario, but we're not talking about modern-day surgeons. We're talking about Victorian people in 1888 who were not very well medically equipped, not very well... Um, And obviously it would have needed specialized people to remove those organs with precision. Okay, first of all, (laughs) wait a minute, hold
4: on. We're we're not talking about precision. We're talking about a man mutilating a woman in an alley. It doesn't require precision to stick a knife in somebody
1: and
4: rip it out. And saying that Victorians, hold on, I'm going to finish now. And saying that Victorians um, weren't modern surgery, they had scalpels back then. They were accustomed to cutting people open. And assuming that it was even a doctor, we have butchers who are accustomed to cutting people open. So saying that because they were Victorian, they didn't have the equipment, they had a scalpel. That's all that's really required, a sharp implement and a hand to reach in and take it out. So it's not like we have any modern implements that's going to make the process of evisceration any more speedy or convenient. All that you require is a sharp implement.
3: I I think, actually, the history of medicine shows, or the history of surgery, shows that um, um, the further back you go in time, the quicker they were at removing things. I mean, before the advent of anesthesia um, and other, you know, Russian princesses, sorry, weak jaw, um, (laughs) <laughs> uh, but the, the whole emphasis was on wasn't getting the operation over uh, and done with in as as quick a time frame as possible. So I think I think you know, they probably take more time these days. Uh, and and Dr. Phillips, who said it may have taken him a, a quarter of an hour, uh, probably would have taken more time uh, to, to, to to invest the right amount of care in removing an organ than uh, a rank amateur would have done. Um, and, and we're also, not talking um, about
4: a doctor, necessarily. We're just talking about no, someone I, doing a snatch and grab.
1: Okay, firstly, um, if, if for argument's sake has been suggested that the killer was a medical man, I think a lot of people have put that forward. Now, if that be the case, then and the reason for killing these women was to remove the organs, why would he make it difficult for himself by mutilating the bodies and the abdomen to the extent that he did, thereby making it much more difficult for him to remove the organs than just strangling the women, cutting their throats and making a proper surgical incision and removing the organs in, in the correct and proper manner. So I think that rules out the fact that, this, that the killer was a man with any medical knowledge because he wouldn't have done that if he just wanted the organs so uh, that that's one side of the coin and, and the other points that you've put forward are they are valid points in themselves and they are a number of points which everybody has thrown back at me in relation to this but what I would say is that the, the We get back to what we said earlier, that it's a question of people having the professional knowledge and ability. Now, I am not a professional medical expert. That's why I enlisted the help of a number of professional experts. And I have to be guided on what they say. And if they say that it would have been very difficult and almost impossible, then I have to go along with that. And I would have to say that people like yourselves who put forward the reasons why you think that the killer did take those organs, because, uh, as Ali said, snatch and grab, etc., etc. I don't agree with that, because it wasn't suggested that these organs were just ripped out or cut out. It was suggested that there was some anatomical knowledge used to remove those organs. And, in fact, it my oncologist... Bi- a... bi- <laughs>
5: that, that was only Dr. Your Brown. He was, as, he was actually yeah. in the minority of opinion. I mean, at the, at the Edo's inquest, I mean, I mean, Dr. Brown was the only person who really attributed uh, surgical... Skill and anatomical knowledge. You had both Saunders and Sakira detected little, if any, anatomical knowledge, and Dr. Phillips and Coroner Baxter were inclined to dismiss it uh, as the work of a crude imitator. And um, Trevor, I had to wonder when you uh, when you when you recruited. Sorry, I'll, I'll a little bit more. When you uh, recruited these experts, um, did it come with the presupposition that the Ripper was targeting, or whoever the Eviscerator was, was targeting specific organs? Because it occurs to me that if he, if he wasn't targeting specific organs, then the uh, the darkness and the time taken to remove them is, is largely irrelevant. Because he was just kind of plunging in and taking out whatever was of in, of interest, rather than targeting specific organs.
1: Okay. Well, if 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 that be the case, then certainly the kidney is not something that you would just take on potluck because you would never you would never be able to get hold of it. Really, it's difficult. The kidney is very difficult. The kidney sits in a, in a big chunk of renal fat. Um, and, and to get that, if you wanted it quickly and you knew what you were doing... Uh, you could get hold of the renal fat and rip it out completely, so the whole renal fat would come out with the kidney encased. That would be the quickest and simplest method. That would be easy to get hold of. But if you are removing the kidney, then it's a, it's a much more difficult thing. And what I did with the experts is I gave them all the post-mortem reports to look at and peruse before we did any of the tests. And, in fact, the gynecologist um, said that... After reviewing the re- the um, the reports uh, on, on one of the victims, I forget which one it was. It probably was Edos. He believed that the way uh, the organs were described as being removed is suggestive of it being uh, removed for medical research because how how the various things were removed and cut. Now you make of that what you will. That's that's what he's gone on record as as stating. Um, I argue. On the
3: the flip side there, you've got Dr. Ian West, or the late Dr. Ian West, who is a a renowned Home Office pathologist who who, who probably um, uh, attended many murder investigations and carried out scores, if not hundreds, of autopsies himself, saying quite clearly that he believed that um, uh, the the whole mutilation of air that that, that includes the removal of the kidney, the uterus, the, the, the initial opening of the abdomen and the throwing of the intestines over the shoulder... Probably only took about three or four minutes.
1: Yeah, this is where we get back. Sorry, this is. I've had this. I had this um, argument with Steele Evans just recently because he quotes uh, the same pathologist as you do. And what I would say is that um, a lot of these modern day experts, uh, Professor West, and and not only the, the people that I uh, used in my test, but of course because they are expert, because they are proficient. They look at things in a modern-day perspective. Uh, as, as I said earlier, we do not know the level of expertise of people way back in Victorian times. And I do not dispute the fact that uh, that a, a, a gynecologist or a pathologist could remove a uterus in three or four minutes. I, I wouldn't dispute that fact. But what I would dispute the fact is that way back then, 120-odd years ago, however long it was, then people were not as proficient and not as expert in, in the various aspects of medicine as we are nowadays. And so, therefore, if you put Professor West back 120 years, would he still be able to remove that same organ in, in three or four minutes? And I would suggest not.
3: Well, the point that, 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 the point that Professor West made, that it was very uh, quickly and rapidly and crudely done. He was making no presumption of any skill on, on the part of the murderer. And, you know, my observation would be, and and, uh, it's that people have been eviscerating pigs and chickens for thousands of years, and and that what we actually see in the case of Catherine Eddowes, and to an extent with the other victims, is is little more than that, I'm afraid.
1: I agree. Well, okay. everybody's in charge of their opinion. As I say, all, all I have done is put forward a number of aspects which I would ask people to consider, Um, people have the option of either accepting them or denying them. I've gone a stage further in in producing modern-day medical evidence which supports what I have suggested, and again, the same applies. People either accept it or they reject it. It, It's as simple as that. We we, we cannot throw any further light on this, Uh, and uh, unfortunately, people will still for whatever reason because the removal of the organs and the mutilations and everything else is a big part of the ripper. If you kick that into touch and, and, and rule that out then the, the ripper becomes nothing more than just a, a series of ordinary murders. It takes the glamour Let away from it. Let me ask you a question. People...
4: When you... When you had your your surgeons do your medical experiments, you said already that you went in and you gave them all this pre-information and you gave them all of this stuff, and they went in with a pre-formed idea of what was possible and what was not. I would like to see somebody give a person with a knife relatively unknown, go in and say, you've got five minutes, see if you can grab an organ, and find out... If someone is capable of doing that. And I would think you would find that the answer, by and large, would be yes. You're telling them, go in, see if you can get the kidney, do this. And they've already had a preformed idea about it. So that's going to determine what they think they can and cannot do. And it's also going to determine, obviously, what they do and do not do. But I would like to see a, an unbiased, without prior, uh, without prior instructions or prior, uh, I can't think of the word I'm trying to think of right or, here. But or without a prior, organ. <laughs> yeah. And just say, can you go in, get her guts out, and grab an organ in ten minutes? And I, I guarantee you that I could probably do it if you know, the thought didn't make me wretch. But you know, it, it, it's a different when they're going on with a specific goal, and when they're just going in to see, can you do damage to a human body and grab an organ?
0: It okay. Fine. A- <laughs> no, go ahead,
1: Trevor. Okay, that's a it's a valid it's a valid point you've put forward there. But but first of all, what I would suge- what I would suggest is that, and obviously, when I set out with the medical team to do this, I I I, I could envisage the negative um, feedback that 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 there would be, which which obviously I'm getting from you people here in relation to this. So what I decided to do was photograph the processes as we went along to show how difficult that it it is in any event. So that's one side of it. So if if you... if any, if any of you people here uh, want, I have a present, PowerPoint presentation which I've, which I've done in relation to the process that we adopted. And, and if you contact me, I'll gladly send you a copy of that and then you can see the various stages and the degree of difficulty. But going on from what Ali said a little while ago, what I also did is I also enlisted the help of a master butcher. Now, you were saying about just anybody can go in and do this and do that because it was suggested that perhaps... Jack the Ripper was a butcher. Now, I enlisted the help of a master butcher who uh, has been in the butcher trade for about 30 odd years, a very highly experienced butcher. He started work in an abattoir, so he knows all about killing animals and, and uh, gutting animals, etc. etc. And he said that obviously the, uh, the nearest animal that, that equates to a human is obviously a pig. And he said, yes if there was a pig hanging up or on the floor, I could go into that pig and I would know exactly where the uterus is and I could probably remove it. But I wouldn't want to attempt it in the dark with a sharp knife um, for fear of cutting fingers, whatever. And that's a master butcher. So if you look at a master butcher, you've got no chance with an ordinary member of the public with a knife going in, taking potluck, as you would suggest. Well, the
3: the, the butcher's... The frame of reference is entirely different, though. I mean, if, if, if you were, went to your local butchers and you were served, you know, cutlets a la Ripper, then I dare say the butcher wouldn't be in business for very long. So, you know, he, he's got an interest there, uh, in, in actually presenting the meat in a, in a saleable way. Uh, and also, in his case, uh, self-preservation. I mean, his fingers are his living. Uh, when you've got a maniac who's going out just to do as much damage to women as possible, then his motivations are arguably different. And, and from that, then, uh, you know, the manner in which he would uh, perform the operation would be uh, radically different, I'd suggest, from either a butcher or a surgeon because he's not well, interested my- in the cement
1: Maybe I'd suggest as an as an as a we can't do it on humans, but maybe I would suggest if you feel strongly about the subject, then I would suggest you go along to your local butcher and, and ask him to let you have a little dabble with a knife um on a pig to see if you could go into that pig and find its uterus and cut that out. If you could then maybe you've got a chance with um Possibly uh, removing a uterus or a kidney under similar circumstances from a human. I, I can't say any more than that. If you feel that you know Joe Public or any any man could have done it, go along to a butcher and put it to the test. But, uh, but again, if
5: but again, if Jack the Ripper wasn't, if Jack the Ripper didn't have the mindset of right, I'm deliberately targeting uh, a uterus or a kidney, then uh, then 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 the test is a little bit, uh, it's not quite a fair one. If 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 Jack the Ripper's uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, if his real mentality was let's just seek out an organ, doesn't matter which one, just some kind of trophy, then uh, then I think, yes, I, 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 you're, I certainly think. I think I,
1: you're. I think you're sort of hedging your um, your bets a little bit here. I think you're. Th- I'm not trying to be difficult or awkward, but obviously you appear to have. Uh, the fact in your mind that, that somebody has removed these organs on the street from the victims, fine. That that's you know you're quite entitled to think like that. Uh, you know, obviously I've put forward another plot what I believe to be plausible explanations, backed up by by corroborating evidence. Uh, again, as I said earlier, you don't have to accept it. You can reject it. Uh, you know, we're going around in circles. all right. due so respect.
0: Right, uh, and, I, and I do want to move on to something else, um, which may be as contentious uh, as the organ removal, though, I'm sorry to say, Trevor. But firstly, if I do want you to email me that PowerPoint presentation, and, um, and if you'd agree, maybe I can put it up um, on the casebook or somehow try to get into the podcast feed so um, so the other alternative
1: to- is that obviously the the, the the colour photos, most of the colour photos are are in, in the, the book The Evil Within because I purposely uh, wanted to include them in that extended chapter on Jack the Ripper because I knew that the, the, the feedback that I would get would be exactly as it has been from a, I wouldn't say a lot of people because a lot of people now, I think uh, look at it in a different light. I, I did the presentation for the Whitechapel society in london not so long ago and a lot of them are seasoned hardened ripperologists who came up to me afterwards and said well we've we've really now got to think differently to what we've been thinking um and i think you know that that is the way to look at it i don't think you should dismiss it outright Mm. um but again, obviously, it's an individual choice.
3: Uh, um... I have to say, Trevor, uh, Sir so, so before we move on to the next question, I will say at this point that, you know, cre- uh, credit is, uh, is more than due to Trevor for actually go- going this far. I mean, there are a lot of aspects of the Ripper case that are demonstrable. In one way or another, we might not agree with the conclusions. Uh, But nonetheless, Trevor has at least um, taken one of those uh, and and put it to an experiment. And I I think credit is due to you for that, Trevor, and thank you for doing
0: so.
1: Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to know my labours haven't been in vain and all the hours and time that I've put into this.
0: (laughs) Yes, I I do second Gareth's (laughs) remarks as well. Now, um, I I do want to, before this podcast goes on too long, Want to get in um, the uh, controversy surrounding your suggestion about Catherine Edo's
1: apron? We're going to get back to medical. We're going to get experts again here. <laughs> well, uh,
0: I want to give you a chance, you know, to explain your your theories, and that is a. That- Popular conception has it that Jack the Ripper removed a portion of her apron, possibly cleaned his knife or himself or what have you, and deposited it in Goulston Street. You have a different take on the matter, so why don't you explain for our listeners what that is?
1: Okay, I'm now putting my tin hat on again now. (laughs) Um, yes, basically, if you look at, at, at sort of my investigation and my um, my sort of theories, the fact that obviously, if, if we accept that the killer didn't remove the organs from the victims as has been generally accepted, then it does bring into um, it does bring into contention this uh, apron piece because obviously we know that an apron piece was found in Gulston Street, um, and of course. Uh, The apron piece has been described in many ways but my interpretation of of the description that I have is that it was wet, it was screwed up, it uh, was spotted with blood and had a smearing of faecal matter. Now obviously... Um, the, su- the main suggestion was, or the two suggestions, that the killer wiped his knife on that. Well, I would, first of all, dismiss that outright on the basis of the fact that if the killer had wanted to clean his knife, then he would have done it with one swift, um, one swift movement across any of her clothing as she lay dead on the ground. There would no need for him to cut... Uh, a piece of apron and, and walk away cleaning a knife and then disposing of that so I don't subscribe to that theory the other theory obviously is that, that the organs were taken away in that apron and obviously I don't subscribe to that either and so um, there were t- was there another explanation and, and one explanation or a plausible explanation that I wanted to put forward was the fact that um, Catherine Eddowes could have cut or ripped that piece of apron herself uh, and used it as a temporary um, uh, sanitary device, because obviously it, um, it it was spotted with blood, it had a smearing of faecal matter, and and obviously was wet. Now, to my mind, that all, all those are consistent with that piece of rag coming in contact with her genital area. Uh, obviously, spotting is consistent with the menstrual period. Um, the fecal matter, well, obviously a smearing of that could be consistent with that somewhere being in the vicinity of, of her of her anal area. Uh, and obviously wet, it could have been that, that if she'd used it as a um, temporary sanitary vice while she was in custody, Then she could have um, uh, urinated herself, uh, been incontinent while she was um, in in the cell. And then when she was released, um, she could have disposed of it um, in in that area whilst going to the toilet. So that was one aspect. Um, Obviously, a lot of people don't subscribe to that for varying reasons. And again, all I can say is, well, that's obviously a matter for them. It is it is a, another plausible explanation and I would suggest shouldn't be dismissed um, following on from that what I also di- did was to disprove the the fact that the organs were taken away in that uh, piece of rag and so again with the use of medical experts we we did a test whereby my uh, consultant gynaecologist whilst performing a, a hysterectory from a live donor um, took out um, a ut- took out a uterus and uh, we wrapped the uterus in a white cloth for uh, fifteen to twenty minutes um, and then opened it up and photographed it and showed that, uh, that in fact that the the cloth was heavily blood stained with with obviously red oxygenated blood, so therefore that 's not consistent with somebody taking away a, a uterus and a kidney wrapped in in that piece of apron because it would have been heavily bloodstained uh, and and so that that's really my two takes on on the organs okay and the apron piece
0: robert do you have a uh, follow-up for that
2: yeah one of the problems I i've get, always had with um, that is that uh, yeah we'll, we'll go uh, to I'll ro- you, robert. yeah i'll let you get out in, in a sec alley um <laughs> That she had so many other things she could have used in that way, because amongst her possessions she had twelve pieces of white rag, she had a large white pocket handkerchief, she had another uh, various uh, bits and baubles of, of of various fabrics and and she could have used uh, actually any one of these I mean an apron seems rather extreme and rather precious okay. to be used it's that 's that, true extra- thats that has been put that, that has been mentioned
1: now. Again, we cannot prove or disprove this fact because normally it is is customary that when people are arrested and taken to police stations, their belongings are taken off them and kept for safety. Now, if she had been um, uh, searched when she arrived at the police station, those belongings may well have been taken off her and kept away from her while she was locked in a cell. If she found that she needed to uh, use... A cloth for that reason, then she could have quite easily ripped that off herself while she was in the cell. That that that's another, that's another possibility that shouldn't be discounted.
4: Um, well, no, I'm sorry, but I have to disagree as far as plausible and discounted because well, you've missed a third um, use that has been suggested for um, the, the piece of apron, um, not just to wipe away his knife, which could have been done in a quick, easy swipe, but to get rid of the blood and the gore that was on his hands. You say that in evidence of it being a menstrual rag, the blood spotting, the coming in contact with her anus, well, it's also evidence of coming in contact with a woman who just got eviscerated with her bowels and the subsequent fecal matter being strewn all over it gets on his hands he requires something to wipe it and he cuts a piece of apron to take it away to wipe his hands now that is a much more plausible and logical scenario than a woman who has a handkerchief in her pocket and i'm quite sure that they wouldn't have frisked her and divested her of a handkerchief in her pocket should she have needed it in a jail cell but if she were in the jail cell and found herself in need of this device no every woman in the world has been caught Barefooted, in need of a device for that purpose when they haven't had one. I think you would be hard-pressed, unless it was in the most dire of emergency circumstances, to have a woman basically cut off her shirt or her skirt to use in that fashion when she had a handkerchief in her pocket. And I'm very sure they didn't go in to her clothing and take out and empty her pockets of a handkerchief. And if she had needed it, all she would have had to have done was say, Hey, copper... I need a rag and I'm quite sure that in those circumstances it would have been provided for her she wasn't going to ruin one of her very precious articles of clothing when you've only got four articles of clothing you're not going to destroy the one that's you know your apron in those times you're not going to destroy your apron when it's not vital it, it just it doesn't make any kind of sense for a woman to do that and destroy a cherished piece of clothing in a non-dire, non-emergency situation, when there are hundreds of other avenues that she could have used, the, the, the handkerchief, the cloths, even on the bare chance she got caught flat-footed at the worst possible time in the jail cell, her handkerchief, or very simply asking the police officer, excuse me, I've been caught here, can't one of my rats.
1: Okay. Okay, that's the fact I, I you've, you've, you know, you've, you've put a very valid point forward, and I, I accept that, and... and, and but what I would say is that, obviously, one thing that you probably will not be aware of, that when drunken people get put in police cells, certainly, I, I guess, probably not so much nowadays, but in, in probably years gone by, they were put in a cell and left um, and, and probably not not looked at until they were sober again or until they started showing any signs of, of movement. So, you know, that there is always that possibility, and I, I put this forward because I... It is only a possibility, it is only another explanation. I am not coming out um, on record and saying this is the reason because you know that 's not what i 'm about with with all the with all the aspects of the ripper that I've been involved in, I have never actually categorically come out and said whatever I put forward is written in stone because it 's not it 's only explanations and other alternatives now, as far as the Um, The other, the third use of the rag rag that you suggested, again we've gone back to doing some tests and again we did some controlled tests where we had a number of white rags which were dipped in, well the hands were dipped in blood and then in various ways they were wiped on white cloth and we photographed the results of uh, the wiping of the hands. And again, the the results clearly show large staining of blood, not blood spotting. It, 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 you know, I, and, and, of course, if you then get back to saying, well, it can't have been used for the knife, for, for, for wiping the knife, it's not used for taking the organs away, it's not used, you know, as a menstrual rag, you know, what was it used for? And, and of course, you know, we're, we're back to sort of Not really being 100% certain, but but always casting a doubt.
4: But you're once again presuming that his hands were drenched in blood in your test. You're presuming the scenario of how it would have gone about to disprove what you already believe to be not true. We don't know that his hands were drenched in blood. We don't know that he didn't previously wipe them and then just take the apron with him as an off you know, an additional measure of cleaning after he was done. We don't know exactly what spotted and streak blood means because we're going on a vi- on a written report of something we don't have a visual of. But again, and going back wait, to wait, the wait. earlier thing of Edo's and the cell, we do have documented evidence that the police officer spoke with her while she was still in lockup. They She asked, uh, I, I'm going to not be able to get the exact uh, words here, but something like, when are you going to let me go? The cop says, when you sober up, I'm sober now. They said they heard her singing. So there was communication back and forth between the police officers and Eddowes that is documented. So all of these things, you know, you can't just dismiss or or presume and say, this is evidence. We did test when you're sort of, you're leading the evidence to the conclusion that you want. His hands were drenched in blood. We don't know that. So, I mean, tests are good. And I, and I highly applaud people who do test, but they have to be done controlled and not
0: towards a leading result. I, I think no, as well... Hold on, hold on, everybody. Let, let Trevor respond and then, and then um, Gareth and then Ben. We can't, we,
1: we can't take it for granted, but of course, obviously, we can only try to recreate what is being suggested. And if somebody suggests that it was used to, t- to wipe uh, the bloody hands on, then we do a test which, which is as near to that as we can, albeit... Yeah, I accept that we, we we had blooded hands which were dipped in blood. But, of course, the other end of the scale is that the, the description of the cloth, as has been given to us since Victorian times, is that it was spotted with blood. And if it's spotted with blood, it can't have been used to wipe his hands, because wiping hands doesn't, spot, doesn't leave spots of blood. J- All
3: right, just Garrett, on that, yes. Uh, yeah um it, in in terms of recreating the the scenarios as, as closely as possible, I think correct me if I'm wrong Trevor that um, the the test that you did actually involved using surgical rubber gloves to handle the organs um, which, that's correct uh, you know, yeah so I mean skin has a different surface tension, so if, uh, you know than, than latex, or at least mine has or it used to um so that you know typically when you put skin uh, in, into contact with blood it, it it tends to dry uh and seep into the pores uh, rather rather quickly <laughs> whereas with with latex it, it sort of clings to the surface and remains fairly liquid so you're going to get a greater transfer that way anyway and secondly on the point of spotted uh or, or the the adjective spotted um most of the um Descriptions of the uh, the apron fragment found, uh, I say fragment, it was almost half an apron found in Gulston Street, uh, says that it was smeared with blood and apparently fecal matter, which, as Ali's already pointed out, uh, you know, is perfectly congruent with the state in which Catherine Edo's body was found. Um, uh, Ali also made the suggestion that maybe the the, the ripper wiped his hands before uh, cutting the apron. Uh, or did, did, did a, pr- a preliminary wipe of, of, of his hands anyway. And again, that's congruent with the fact that uh, Dr. Brown describes uh, fecal matter being smeared all over Catherine externalised intestines. So it seems to me as if the the, the Ripper, having had his hands soiled by blood and or faeces, um, uh, wiped the contents of his hands on, onto uh, Catherine Eddow's intestines, um, before deciding, oh, I need a bit more of a wipe. I'll take this bit of apron with me. Yeah, that would seem to be a, I mean, a, a cohesive uh, scenario.
5: And it's, it's, not, it's not just smears and spots either. I mean, one witness has uh, reported that it was uh, in one corner. It was actually sat- saturated with blood. So I I'd slightly disagree with Trevor there when he says it's not consistent with, for example, um, organ transportation. I think that the, uh, the saturated corner would uh, tend to suggest that, if anything. Although, again, the sort of the hand wiping and then taking it away, uh, that's not to be ruled out either. But I think because there are conflicting reports as to the, the nature of the blood on the apron, I think it's, it's fairly difficult to recreate faithfully, although I, you know, I certainly I, I think of Trevor for trying.
1: Indeed, I
0: that's what you're saying, I that yes, and that's that's. But, Go ahead,
1: Trevor. Yeah, I, I accept what everybody says, but at the end of the day, all we can do is try to create as near as possible what people are suggesting um, took place. And obviously, one of the suggestions is that he. Um, Cut the apron piece and took it away for the purpose of wiping his hands or taking the organs away and the tests that i have done in connection with the experts clearly do not corroborate that what anybody says you know you can make arguments and you can hedge your bets and you can go around corners and say ah but you know it was latex gloves or it was whatever it still wouldn't make any difference if you've got hands that are blood stained and you've just taken them out of somebody's intestines, they would still, uh, leave, uh, a smearing of blood, not spotting. Oh, absolutely. Oh, oh, absolutely. And I think,
3: I think the spotting is, is overdone, uh, and with respect to, no, no, with due respect to Ben, uh, it was only ever said that one corner of the apron was wet, not the entire surface. Um, uh, and that, you know, the, the predominant uh, impression you get from reading the reports is that there were smears on this apron. And, and indeed, Dr. Brown, I believe, at the inquest uh, states that um, it had the appearance that a hand or bloody knife had been wiped on it. Now, this was a, a okay. man at the scene. A hand, Yes.
4: If been wiped. Blood on it, and I take a rag and I wipe it on my finger and drag it across my finger, it's going to leave a smear. Trevor is saying his tests don't corroborate it, but he tested a very one very specific circumstance of hands dipped in blood being wiped on a rag. But he's trying to make it say that he has scientific testing that doesn't corroborate that theory, when in fact he does not have this... He has scientific tests that shows if somebody had their hands up to their wrists dipped in blood, it's not going to leave a smear. And so I just think that that point needs to be very, very clear because when people say they have scientific tests that disprove something, you have to be very clear on what you're disproving and that you're and, and you're not necessarily disproving what you claim to be disproving here. Correct.
1: I think. Well, again, okay, as yes, I said, I it's correct. a matter of it's a matter for interpretation at the end of the day I I have to say and I'm not having a go at anybody specifically but but, but,
4: oh go ahead
1: (laughs) I'm not having a go at anybody specifically because I, I I say this to many people that there are there are so many people that are fixed in their ways and views in relation. It is a valid point that, um, that has been put forward in relation to that, but but basically it doesn't change significantly um, the, the transference of the blood to the to the material. In, in in all honesty, because again, if if somebody has got blood on their hands in any event, it does tend to uh, it does tend to congeal much quicker, I guess, on their hands than it would. Um, from the latex gloves, because obviously it, latex is not so absorbent as, as as the flesh. But nevertheless, we did a couple of experiments, not just on one occasion, but we, we, we did a couple of scenarios with um, wiping the hands in different motions on different cloths um, to show different types of, of, of results. And, and both results are, were quite clear that, that left a lot of blood staining and not and not smearing, and it was significant um, staining, I should say. But again, it, it's, it's open to what people want to believe, what people want to accept, and what people don't want to accept. As I did say earlier, there are a lot of people that, that for whatever reason, don't want this mystery to be solved, don't want to, to to change their views and beliefs that they've had for for all the time they've been, um, been interested in the Ripper. Um, and and that's that's entirely a matter for themselves. But but of course you know obviously things move on, um, and as you said that somebody like me comes along and, and introduces some new aspects to this, goes out on a limb with some new tests and experiments to try to either prove or disprove some of the accepted facts. Um, and, and I personally think that, um, that that the tests we've done have cast a major doubt um, about some of these. Uh, accepted theories, uh, uh, and I can't really say any more than that. And you know, it, it is a question of each individual to look at and 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 accept or reject. Okay.
0: Um. Any um. Anyone else have any uh, final questions uh, for Trevor?
4: I have no final questions. I just want to say, Trevor, you've been a great sport. It was
1: a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and you haven't fret me anyway, Ali. No. <laughs>
0: All right, yes, uh, I agree, Trevor. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, Trevor's website is www.trevermarriott.co.uk, at which you can find more information about his books, and you can also purchase his books uh, from that website, as well as on Amazon.com. Again, he's the author of Jack the Ripper, The 21st Century Investigation, and his new book is entitled The Evil Within The World's Worst Serial Killers.
1: Can I just say, before yes, you Kevin. finally finish, that um, obviously we've discussed in, in a lot of detail the, the tests and the medical experts that I've used. Um, the, the extended chapter on Jack the Ripper in, in the new book, The Evil Within, uh, does in fact include all the statements from the various experts in relation to the matters that we've discussed. So... Um, if anybody hasn't had the opportunity of getting a copy or reading it, I'm not giving a plug, but um, obviously it is quite interesting for people to look and read um, the statements from the experts, what they say, how they arrive at their conclusions. Um, and as I say, there is a statement from a gynecologist, a pathologist, an inviscerator who obviously is involved in taking out organs on a daily basis, uh, and as I also said, a master the butcher. So there is quite a collection of... of you know, interesting statements there for people to read along with the photos. And if anybody does want um, a PowerPoint presentation in relation to the matters that we've discussed, uh, I'll gladly forward one on if if people contact me and give me their uh, addresses. I can't download it on on an email because it's too big big a, a document, so it'll have to go in the post. I don't actually
0: have the uh, the book The Evil Within, but now I'm going to have to pick it up because what you've said today on the show is all very interesting and I'd love to read more about uh, the tests that you ran um, with your experts. So
1: I should also say one thing before we finally do wind up is that, that obviously um, since a lot of my uh, investigation has been made public, uh, I'm sort of... Very surprised at a lot of so-called experts um, who have chosen to uh, dismiss outright a lot of the uh, aspects of, of the investigation. And, and I have to say a lot of them have, have tended to criticise uh, a lot of what I've done without actually even bothering to, to buy a copy of the book or read into it or look at anything that, that's been done. And I have to say I find that a bit uh, a bit sort of out of order by a lot of people who you know, tend to pick up on what other people say and and tend to feed off it. I think before anybody should criticise and everybody's open to criticism and I'm quite happy to accept criticism, I think that, you know, they should read the book and then they're in a better position to make perhaps, you know, um, constructive criticism. But um, anyway... uh, Sorry, Trevor, I was just going to say, as someone who has read the books, uh, including including your latest one, I've got to say
3: that, you know, uh, we shouldn't get too hung up on the, on, on the Feigenbaum theory or, or on the, um, the the experiments with blood or anything, because there's a hell of a
1: lot else in the books that, that, that are worth reading. Um, I've got to say I've enjoyed them both. Thank you very much, and, it, and it's nice to talk to you all, and, and I hope that we've had an interesting evening. I certainly had an interesting evening, um, and I hope I've helped to make um, your, interesting, uh, your Sunday evening or Sunday daytime a little bit more interesting um, interesting and, and hopefully you you'll you'll all look at me perhaps in a different light now. Uh,
0: you've certainly uh, made my Sunday interesting Trevor and again I thank you for being on the show. And that was Rippercast episode 36 reinvestigating the ripper a conversation with Trevor Marriott. I want to thank Trevor for being on the show again. And I also want to thank Robert McLaughlin, Allie Ryder, Ben Holm, and Gareth Williams for being our co-hosts today. We are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders available at the website www.casebook.org podcast, in the iTunes Music Store, in their podcast section, in their history department, keyword RipperCast. And I want to thank everybody for listening. We'll be taking next week off, but we'll be back on December 28th for our year in review show. So we'll see you then, and have a happy holidays.